I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to begin today at verse 6 and go through verse 8. So let me open us in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have the opportunity week after week after week to gather together as your children and to hear from your word. Lord, every day we need you, every day we need your truth, every day we need to fight a battle in our minds to think rightly about ourselves, about the world around us, and about you. So I pray, Lord, as we are dealing with this text of Scripture this morning, that you would help it to penetrate our hearts. Lord, I pray that the theology that's being communicated here would encourage us and comfort us and give us hope. And I pray, Lord, that as we study your truths, both in Sunday school and then in the main service, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would enable us to not just learn information, but to know how to apply the information in our lives. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are in First Peter, and we're in the midst of chapter 2, and the last two messages I gave were on 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And we were dealing with a theological truth that Peter is communicating that is supposed to help us think correctly about us, ourselves, and the world around us. As has been clear in the number of times that I have mentioned this in talking about 1 Peter, the original recipients of this letter were people enduring great hardship for their faith. They had genuine belief and faith in the Lord, but they were suffering for their faith. They were not living in an environment where people embraced their Christianity. In fact, they were ostracized and attacked for their Christianity. And so, 1 Peter was written in part to encourage these believers. He certainly wanted them to live holy in the midst of their difficult times. That might be a dominant theme, but he also wanted to encourage them to keep pressing forward, to have hope in the Lord. And as we have gone through, we're in a section in chapter 2 where he's not telling them, do this, do that. It's actually a little side road where he's teaching them some theology which should guide their thinking. And as we were looking, I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. The last two times I taught, we dealt with this. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in the context of this, I want to over summarize this. It was two messages, but I want to summarize it briefly. He was painting a picture of where we fit in God's kingdom. Our text this morning is a continuation of that flow of thought, so I want to make sure we understand this, not reteaching it, but again, this is supposed to be encouragement, and the focus is, of course, on Jesus Christ. At times, it's hard to be a Christian. Peter knows that. If all we had to deal with was our own flesh and our own residual sin, that's a full-time job. Fighting a daily battle, if it was just fighting against ourselves, it's hard. 
But then you add in more physical ailments and family struggles and work problems and money problems and context and we may have a brief reprieve but it will come when we find external forces in our culture that are hostile to Christianity that impact us personally. Peter knew all of these issues existed and when he was talking about living stone of Christ and our place in God's kingdom he wasn't ignorant of all of these challenges. And as I go through 1 Peter, more and more I'm convinced of how applicable it is to our own lives. We tend to think at times, and I hear Christians talk this way, and certainly uh, we've all been guilty of it, and you've heard me talk about the changes in our culture, but we tend to think sometimes that things are now uniquely different than they've ever been. That the things perhaps we experience are different than anybody's ever dealt with, but that's not true theologically. Now, the Bible does say that as we get to the end of times, things will get worse and worse, but human beings haven't changed. The hearts are the same. The struggles are the same. Sin is still sin. Satan is still Satan. His demonic forces are still demonic forces. I think often about the type of phraseology in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, I decided to teach First Peter. I almost taught Ecclesiastes. Someday I'd like to go through that. But it's the concept there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. As he phrased it, already as it existed for ages which were before us. That's in response to somebody saying, hey, that's new. No, it's not. When it comes to sin and sanctification, it's all the same. So Peter was encouraging us and he was letting us know that we're a part of something beyond ourselves. Jesus is a living stone and God is building up a spiritual house that he's using all of his children to create. And as I articulated as we were going through it, each one of us has a specific place in the household of God, that spiritual house that he's building. The imagery is of us as building stones and God has taken us and carefully prepared each one of us. Perhaps flattening one surface or building up another surface. Each one of us in the body of Christ, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have a specific place in God's kingdom and he prepares it perfectly. No one else can take your place in the kingdom of God. No one else can take my place. And yet each one of us has the privilege of being a part of something much bigger than us which should cause us to use our lives to worship the Lord in spiritual sacrifices. So that really is sort of a, a summary of verses 4 and 5. God has chosen Jesus, His Son, God the Father, prepared the Son to be the perfect building material, the perfect stone. He prepared and equipped his son to be the centerpiece of an exceptional building. And we all fit together. The master builder has done all of this. And the text that we're covering this morning is continuing to build on this type of building imagery. Just backing up for just a second. It's the same idea. When you look at the news, the world's chaos. It is. I think one of the biggest differences nowadays is not that things are different, it's that we know about everything. Even 20 years ago, we didn't know instantly everything all around the world. Now you've got real time, boom, boom, boom. 
And what Peter painted a picture of in verse 4 and 5, I think, is you could look around, and if you've ever been in an earthquake, everything shakes. And if you haven't been in an earthquake, you've seen it on TV, or at least you've seen a movie called Earthquake. I mean, they're out there. (laughs) Or in an earthquake, quite often accompanying it is fire, and you see buildings falling and things coming loose and bricks and chunks of buildings falling everywhere or tidal waves coming ashore and you see things being destroyed. I was watching, I don't even know what end of the world movie yesterday that I saw some glimpses of. I didn't even have the volume on and watching a tidal wave knocking buildings down. Here's the point. You can picture in your mind either real-time video that you saw years ago of some natural disaster where buildings were crumbling and falling or some Hollywood reproduction of that type of fictitious event. But the reality is in the midst of all the chaos and all the crumbling and everything, Peter paints a picture that we are secure with Christ. There's one building that never fails. There's one building where the bricks can't be shaken loose, where the walls don't collapse. And we're a part of that. You are perfectly created to be a part of that. And whereas in human context, sometimes you build a wall and you decide, I don't like that wall. Let me rip that one down and build a new one. Or you build a house and you say, I need to build a better one. God's never redesigning anything. He perfectly designed it from the beginning. And you have complete confidence that when God fashioned you and placed you in His house, you're not part of a wing that's labeled for destruction. You will always be secure. Now that is, I believe, encouragement for us. But as great as that truth is, I think Peter anticipates, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there are times when our mind and what we see doesn't match up with what is being said. And so he wants to take it a step further and make it clear that what he is saying is absolutely true and you could take it to the bank, so to speak. I think he understands that despite what I've said and the ability to picture ourselves as part of a massive, beautiful edifice that God has created... If we're not careful, when we look in the mirror, we think we're just one brick in a pile on the side. Forgotten, maybe in the rubble. But that's not true if you know Jesus. I think Peter wants to dispel any thinking like that. He wants to take away doubts. He wants to make certain that we're confident of our place in God's economy because that is what gives you hope to continue stepping forward and moving forward even if things are chaotic and hard. So we're ready to get to our scripture this morning. And what we're going to see as we cover verses 6 through 8 is that Peter puts an exclamation point on what he's saying. He's going to appeal to an authority that is unassailable. No one can dispute it. He's going to appeal to the Old Testament Scriptures. But not just Old Testament Scriptures. He's going to be appealing to prophecy written centuries before that make it clear who Jesus is, His place, and also our hope because of our faith in Him. So follow along 
with me as I read verses 6 through 8. Actually, I'm going to go back and read verse 4 and 5 again, just so you can see this whole thing as a unit. But we're going to be talking this morning verses 6 through 8. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. I've broken this down just into a basic two-part outline. I'm phrasing it as two truths from God's Word to give us comfort in the trials of life. But it's really painting a contrast between what we have in Christ and the fate awaiting unbelievers. So the first truth from God's Word to give us comfort in the trials of life is this. God's promises to His children are eternal. God's promises to his children are eternal. We see this in verse 6 and the first part of verse 7. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. Now Peter is making clear that he's not just rambling on his own. He's not just making up things to share with people. He's appealing to authority. He's appealing to the scriptures. The Bible makes it clear the scriptures aren't just the writings of men. All scripture is inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Inspired by God, literally God-breathed. God is the source of the scriptures. And so when he says, for this is contained in scripture, he's just saying, I can prove to you everything I said in verses 4 and 5 is true. It's God's breathed out and inspired word. There's no greater authority to which he could appeal than the written word. And he's appealing to multiple Old Testament prophecies that are pointing forward to the Messiah. And he understands these prophecies really are the gold standard. I think it's interesting in Second Peter, and if you ever wonder about, well, is Scripture reliable? Memorize Second Timothy 3.16. I would memorize 16 and 17. But also this Scripture, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, is a great verse to meditate on and to understand but know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God 
That's how Peter viewed prophecy, and he's quoting prophecy right now. He understands even these prophecies weren't the product of just the ramblings of men. God himself was behind it, and if God was sharing this truth, what greater authority could there be? So reading again, the first prophecy is set out of the Old Testament text. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This is really a quotation from Isaiah 28:16. Isaiah 28:16. if you were to look, same version of the Bible I read, Isaiah 28:16. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. There's some minor variation of phraseology and this primarily is attributable to the fact that when Peter was quoting scripture, he was quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament. You don't need to know it for a test. It's called the Septuagint. But basically, Jesus quoted from that version. That was the version that everybody had in their hands. You go back a hundred years, everybody had a King James Version. That's just what people had, everywhere they had it. At this time, the Septuagint is what everybody had in their hand. And so Peter is quoting that variation, but it changes nothing about the meaning. What Peter is doing is he's adding depth through these prophetic utterings to the idea of Jesus being a stone. He's taking the building analogy and doing what Scripture did, which was playing it out even further. So Jesus was not just a living stone. He was the stone. He was the one. And God the Father is pictured in the Isaiah text and in how Peter is quoting it. God the Father is the master builder. Behold, I lay in Zion. Now Zion, I think most people would understand it to mean Jerusalem. But that's where the original temple was. But there's something different now. Our study of the book of Hebrews says there's something different. A better way in Jesus Christ. But the imagery here harkens back to the construction of the temple. So God the master builder was laying in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. Now he's already used the words choice and precious in terms of God's evaluation of Jesus in verse 4. Men rejected Jesus Christ. God viewed him as choice and precious, meaning God saw better. God saw perfectly. God had prepared a valuable building stone in Christ. God's son was something different. He wasn't just a regular building block. You look at that wall, there's countless bricks there. It wasn't that way with Jesus. He was something different. He was the perfect beginning of God's true spiritual house. Everything is based on Jesus and his perfect work. Now, I'm not a stonemason. I read the commentaries and I understand things. But in that time, so they tell us, historians and archaeologists, the cornerstone was the stone laid and it set everything else in place. That was where the angles came from. How do you know if your walls are straight? How do you know if you're building in the right place? The cornerstone was everything. If that wasn't perfect, the rest of the building wasn't going to stand. 
And so what Isaiah was saying about Messiah and what Peter's reiterating and saying, this is true, Jesus was everything. Everything is built around him. Jesus fulfills that prophecy. Jesus was the perfect beginning for the spiritual house that God was building. And every one of us, as I mentioned before, we have a place in the house, but our place is in relation to Jesus Christ. But here's where the theology becomes practical. Here's where the theology should help us in our daily lives. He says, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. I think this jumps out at us. But human experience makes this truth precious. And I'll put it in the context that I think it's being phrased. And I'm not asking for a response. I'm asking for you to think through this. Have you ever been lied to? Have you ever been promised something, perhaps in a business transaction or some type of, you were buying something and it wasn't what you were promised? Maybe you thought you were buying one thing and when you received it, it's like, oh, this is not what I thought. Or you thought you were buying something at one price and then, wait a second, what's that additional charge? Or you bought a product that said it will accomplish X and then when you tried to do X, it was a failure. You could come up with countless variations of that. But the bottom line is, have you ever been in a circumstance in your life, and we're all old, have you been in a circumstance in your life where something was promised to you and then the rug was pulled out from under you? You were promised something and then it just didn't happen. I think every one of us has experienced that many times over. If you haven't ever experienced that kind of disappointment, probably you just woke up from a lifelong coma and this is your first experience in the world. And you'll have to trust me, that happens to the rest of us. But here's the point. Since sin entered the world, disappointment has followed humanity. Death and taxes are universal truths. Prepare your young kids or your grandkids to understand disappointment is just as inevitable. But Peter wants to make it clear, God will never do that to his children. Never. God's never going to promise something and then pull out a replacement promise and say, "Eh, I was just kidding. God's never going to leave you nor forsake you and he's not going to change his mind. Peter wants us to understand from Scripture. Even Old Testament prophecy pointed out this reality about those who trust in the Messiah, those who trust in Jesus Christ, you have an assured hope. Nothing can change that. Let me say this to anybody who may be going through a tough time right now or hardships, or struggles. Whatever God has allowed you to endure, whatever He has allowed you to experience, don't ever believe 
the lie of Satan who might whisper in your ear, God forgot you. God doesn't really have anything for you here. That's not true. Even in your weakest, most difficult circumstance, God has you perfectly in His possession. You're secure in Him. What this text is saying is that ultimately you're never going to be embarrassed or ashamed in the eternal scheme of things because you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. That is a great hope in an uncertain, constantly changing, deceptive world. We're part of the family of God being built up into a spiritual house for perfect worship of the Lord and nothing can shake you loose. That should give you hope. That should give you encouragement. And it should give you pause because you understand we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it because we earned it. It's just God's unbelievable mercy. And it's a mercy that's only given to His children. Beginning of verse 7 says, This precious value then is for you who believe. You can just picture, Peter is talking to these beleaguered children of God and he wants them to know, look, you're covered. You're secure. Whatever you think based on what you see, you're fine. In fact, you're fine and only you are fine. This is about believers. Only we have that hope. In fact, we won't experience shame because God pulled the rug out from under us or God changed things. We have a position that's unique, has valuable honor attached to it. We have something intrinsic in Jesus Christ that is more valuable than anything else we could accumulate on the earth. It should give us great comfort. certainly should give us comfort if we ever personally are experiencing hostility or oppression because of our faith. God promises this, that because of our chief cornerstone, because of Jesus Christ, because of our relationship to Him, we are secure no matter what. My mind went to a couple of different texts. I'm just going to read them to you. Psalm 56, verses 8 to 11. The reason this came to my mind is because there's a song. Actually, I listened to it on the way to church again from years ago. Not by any famous artist, just some people that used to sing at a church. And I was thinking about this song, which is really this psalm. And it says, You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's Peter's ultimate point. He's not quoting this psalm. That's the point of all of this. What's man going to do? And that brings to mind a very familiar text 
Again, if you need encouragement right now, write down Psalm 56, verses 8 to 11. There's countless more, but write that down. And then write down Romans 8, 33 to 39. I cannot tell you how many times I go back to this text for my own encouragement. It's a reminder to people who still sin, who still live in a fallen world, who still struggle that nothing can pull you apart from the Lord. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, probably everything Peter's hearers were dealing with. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we whelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just praise the Lord for those things. Praise the Lord for those promises. Praise the Lord for those truths, because Peter's just articulating that same type of concept to people who needed the encouragement. And I know from my time here as pastor, I know from my time in my own heart and my own life as a Christian, we need that encouragement. So praise the Lord for that. But Peter divides up the world in such a succinct way that as we get into our second point, it should give you pause and it should inspire you to want to evangelize the lost. So two truths from God's word to give us comfort in the trials of life. One, God's promises to his children are eternal. We'll never be disappointed. But the second truth is this. God's promises to his enemies are eternal. God's promises to his enemies are eternal. Peter shifts here, the second half of verse 7. But for those who disbelieve... The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And, verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Peter used Old Testament prophetic text to give us hope, but he's also going to use Old Testament prophetic text to make it clear Judgment is coming. This is a very complicated but very easy to understand section. I say it's complicated because there's some theological implications that I won't go into that people have spent centuries writing about. But as tempted as I was to get down some of those side roads, I realized we missed the big picture. Because the big picture is what matters. And the truth being conveyed here is enough for us. Peter was using these Old Testament prophetic words about unbelievers to comfort believers. 
Again, the original recipients of this weren't the people that hate Christ. Since then, over the centuries, it's been used to preach and evangelize the lost. But the original recipients were believers. So this was written to encourage believers. Even the parts about the judgment of unbelievers were designed to encourage believers. As I thought through this, I was trying to comprehend in my mind, why would this be so comforting? And I think my best explanation, my best understanding would be this. Christians, of course, we've already talked about, I've already talked about, were suffering. They were being abused and persecuted just like Jesus. He was falsely accused. He was executed. A travesty of justice from a legal perspective. So this was continuing and his followers were enduring this type of mistreatment and persecution. Unfortunately, the only rule of law at that time was the Roman government. And for the most part, the Roman government, when it came to Christians, did not do justice. There was no recourse for believers. The Roman government, of course, was complicit in the killing of Jesus. The Jewish leaders ultimately were the instigators, but the Jewish government was complicit. Pontius Pilate, the Roman soldiers. And this continues. At various times, the Roman government instigated and or at the very least tolerated the persecution of Christians in their far-flung empire. So there had to be times where Christians, as they looked around at the world and they were being abused mercilessly, had to wonder, how long will this evil go unpunished? Psalm 94, 3-7, I think, captures what might have been going through the hearts of some of these believers. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. I think that's a human reaction. We look around the world now, and I know myself, when I see certain particularly horrific things, it's like, Lord, how about some lightning bolts? Just... Just clean some things up here. How about you just destroy some stuff in a sanctified way? Because <laughs> we see evil and we just scratch our heads and wonder, how long? I think Peter was addressing this heart issue. And he's teaching us through the use of prophecy that we don't need to worry about what's going to happen to evildoers because their time will come. But for those who disbelieve, now we want to be very careful because at one time we all fit in that category. Every one of us. So I think from the text what he's talking about isn't every person at one given moment in time who's an unbeliever because that's all of us. What he's talking about are people who never respond to the gospel. In fact, it's counterintuitive, but if someone starts persecuting you or treating you badly for your faith, you ought to be praying for them to be saved. 
I think all of us at times, fleshly speaking, say, I want them to get what they deserve. But as soon as you ever utter those words, you better take them back because you didn't get what you deserved. You want them to get the mercy you got. You want them to be shown the grace that you received. So he's talking about unbelievers, but we want to be careful about not rejoicing in this. In fact, I have, over my 20 plus years of being a believer, I've seen Christians that seem to take a perverse joy in the destruction of the ungodly. And we've got to be very, very careful about that. But in the context, Peter's talking about those who never come to faith. Christians should rejoice when unbelievers, evildoers become Christians. But if they don't, don't worry that somebody's going to get away with something. Well, they're getting a free pass. Well, I can't believe it. They got away with it. No, they didn't. But for those who disbelieved, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, Peter's quoting two different Old Testament texts. He's quoting Psalm 118.22, which says, Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And he's quoting Isaiah 8.14. Isaiah 8.14, then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both of the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, these are related but independent visual images. So as Peter is quoting these two texts and putting them together, he's aware that the visual imagery is slightly different. And he's also aware, as we'll see in a moment, Jesus applied these to himself. So there's no question about the interpretation. But they paint a graphic picture. As I mentioned, Jesus applied this to himself in Matthew 21, 42 to 45. Jesus was dealing with the religious leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees. And he said, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builder rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. And Jesus quotes another text. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Verse 44. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. So Jesus was applying this specifically to religious leaders in a dialogue he was having with them. Peter's making it clear this goes beyond just the religious leaders. This applies to all unbelievers. Interesting to me, we're reading 1 Peter. Peter wrote this, but Peter's original preaching aren't in 1 Peter. They're in the book of Acts, when he was giving sermons. And in Acts chapter 4, Peter quotes this very thing. I won't go through all the context of it, but again, he was saying, you just killed Jesus, verse 11 of Acts 4, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, 12, and there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 
So let me put these two pictures together. The first is of the building of a structure. And the original Jewish leaders were called the builders. And there was a stone prepared for them that was perfect for their needs. It was Jesus, the Messiah. But uh, the imagery of the text is that these builders got together and they looked at the stone that was perfect for them. And they evaluated it and they looked at all the angles. They looked at everything about it and they said, this can't work. This is pointless. Let's just get rid of it. That really is the picture. They were given a privileged status as God's people. And God said, this is how I want to construct my family moving forward. And they looked at it and said, we don't like the way you're going to build this building. You're just messing this all up. This is not right. So they rejected Jesus. We can't use this stone. It's worthless. And obviously we understand they crucified him. They threw him away. So you've got all of these people who are looking for God, but they will never find him because they've thrown away the only access to God. So it's an imperfect analogy combining these two, but think of it this way. On the one hand, you have this master building that's going up and you have the perfect stone and the builders look at it and say, nah, it's worthless, they throw it away. And then everybody that's walking trying to get to the building is tripping over the stone they threw out in the field. Jesus at that point is a stumbling block. They can't get past him. They rejected him. And the fact is, the house of God can't be built without him. He's the true cornerstone. So the imagery of these human builders who didn't know what they were doing, who foolishly rejected and threw away Jesus, and then God saying, wait a minute, this is the only cornerstone. This is the perfect thing for building my building. And God's put Jesus in his rightful place, but at this point, he's just a stumbling block. For the unbelievers. Those that don't want to bend their knee to Jesus. Can never move forward towards God. Peter phrases it this way. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. It's not just that they are sinners who disobey God. And they do. It's that they disbelieve the most important thing in human history. What did Peter say? There's no other name given among men. Jesus said, repent. They won't do it. They're disobedient to the ultimate issue, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to come to him by faith, but they won't. They're disobedient to the gospel. They're disobedient to the word. And they choose to despise the only source of hope that they have. And Peter, in very succinct fashion, points out a reality. From eternity past, there's been one fate set aside for those who consistently and permanently reject Jesus Christ. And to this doom, 
they were also appointed. The judgment of the wicked is a certainty. That's the horror of hell. If someone will not believe, there is no escape. Hebrews 4.13 There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Context of believers, that's a warning. In the context of unbelievers, there's nowhere to hide. You see it at the earliest age of your kids. They do something wrong, what do they do? They hide. Or they hide what they broke. Or they run away. And what you find is when we're adults, it's the exact same thing. We never really stop. But unbelievers have to be warned there's a doom if you don't repent. There's a doom if you continue in your unbelief and you can't fool or hide from God. And there's no do-over. Again in Hebrews, and, it's, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. I think here's the ultimate point of this. And there's a lot of theology attached to all these thoughts. We never have to look at any evildoer who crosses our path and say to ourselves, man, I can't believe they got away with that. They didn't. Oh, there might not be human consequences right now. But Peter is trying to get us to see things in the big picture. God's going to judge. He's always planned to judge. And those who will not submit to Jesus Christ, who will not come to him in faith, you don't need to worry that they're getting away with it because they're not. So for us as we step back, we can't have a greater hope. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you believe in the chief cornerstone, you'll never be disappointed. God's not going to pull the rug out from under you. And ultimately, when you stand before him for the judgment, you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Your sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're okay. We're okay. And that should give us hope that even now, when it's not so great, we're fine. And don't spend too much time getting frustrated about how the unbelieving are getting away with what they're getting away with. Because if they don't repent and believe, they have a doom awaiting them that shouldn't give us joy, should break our hearts and cause us to want all the more to share Christ and the hope that we have in Him with the lost. Join me as I close this teaching time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the work you've done and the work you're doing in our lives. And I thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, you are a merciful Heavenly Father, and we thank you that you chose broken and weak 
vessels like us and chose to make us a part of your perfect spiritual house. I thank you, Lord, for your salvation. I thank you that you opened our eyes to see the reality of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you will give us hope and comfort even when life is hard. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a concern for the lost. Lord, those who are facing doom, I pray that you would give us renewed zeal to share with them the truth of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of the lost to repent and believe, that they would see the truth and they would respond. Lord, now as we prepare for our main worship service, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for more truth. Prepare our hearts to hear what Pastor Steve has to share with us from Psalm 119. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us not just to accumulate knowledge with this teaching, but that you would help us to transform our thinking in our hearts so that we could live holy lives in service to you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.